Welcome along to the Final Furlong Podcast. I'm Emma Kennedy. It is great to have your company. You are very welcome to the show, and it is great to have the company of this man, the voice of Irish racing for the Irish national broadcaster, RTE, uh, but also a man who has all of the inside information that we need about the future stars of the game. Richard Pugh, welcome to the Final Furlong Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. And I don't say that lightly because an encyclopedic knowledge of the industry. You also have a, a major role with Tattersalls as well, but it's the commentary game that I'm particularly interested in. We've had the pleasure of Simon Holt and Richard Hoyles on the show in the past, uh, Lee McKenzie as well. It's a real art. It's a fine art to be a commentator. And it's it's one thing to be a broadcaster, to, but to be able to call the action on a race is not an easy thing to do. But you were just saying to me beforehand that you consider it a real privilege. Yeah, look, for me in the industry, I, I, I do a number of different things. And I love the fact that there's that sort of range of what I do. But by a country mile, the first love, the passion is is commentary. It's live. It's exciting. It's it's being there at, at I suppose, from an RTE point of view, I'm, I'm lucky because we cover the best 30 days of racing. So whether whether it's the classics or, or Dublin Racing Festival, Leprechaun Christmas Happens Grace, whatever it is you want, um, you're there at the cold face of it. And... Yeah, I, I, I did my first commentary in 1997 at Sligo Point to Point. I'm from Sligo originally, and I rode for a brief period. I finished riding at Sligo Point to Point in 96, and I wanted to be involved in the industry. I did a commentary in 97, and and I I remember how much I enjoyed it that day, and today I enjoy it every bit as much, if not more, because some of those big days, it's, it is. I, I often say it, and I really mean it. It's a privilege to be involved in your sport at any level when the best of it is taking place. And RTE racing has changed and evolved a lot, I think, for the better. But the the two boys were absolutely superb back in the day, particularly Ted Walsh, but Robert Hall was was an amazing anchor. And he would give you uh, an insight and pieces of information that you might not get, actually, uh, in the UK. I loved the BBC. I really loved Channel 4 racing. And sometimes you harken back to the glory days of that. A little bit with rose-tinted glasses, if you really think about it. There were times where it wasn't great. Um, but there was some vintage, legendary stuff that just would not be allowed by Ofcom uh, in this day and age. Did you feel a, a real pressure in in taking over from somebody like Tony O'Hare, who had such an iconic voice and and was such a, a presence in the, in the Irish racing industry? I've never felt pressure or, or, or even nerves. I, I honestly look forward to it that much. I enjoy it, and I'm revved up for it and excited to do it. Like those big days, I, I even now, and there aren't many things that sort of this stage in life that get you excited to that degree so I just couldn't wait every day you were told you were doing I started doing two races to Tony's three and then maybe four and then Tony retired and he got the lot and it was just the buzz of knowing if it's honeysuckle or galloping to champ or whatever is you're going to be calling it however it lands it's you and I suppose what your your not nervousness but your responsibility I suppose is in my mind is if this is a big moment and if reading in the years choose to to, to, to run it have you captured the moment have you captured it as it needs to be captured in 20 years you, you know so a simple thing is if we go back to honeysuckle if honeysuckle one happens grace don't say it's a treble for rachel blackmore on the day because that's not going to be the thing that lasts the course of time it's what is it in the context of the career the, the combination okay can, can you capture those moments a nation holds its breath will i ever get a moment like that <laughs> <laughs> but even richard hoyle's call on Denman. The answer is Denman. Like that's a fantastic call that I know he'd planned beforehand, but he had another one if Cotto was the one to come out on top. Um, or for that matter, if, if any horse had, he was going to have a response to it. Uh, Simon Holt was saying he had thought about the three goal cups and emphasizing the three for best mate. He did the same thing for Yates 
uh, as well at, at Ascot, but he wasn't entirely sure that he was going to do that until it was the commentary. How much of it is prepared beforehand and how much of it is just completely on instinct? The better stuff is on instinct. <laughs> uh, generally what you prepare, uh, and I don't prepare much uh, in terms of, you know, what if he wins or she wins, but generally what you prepare is impossible. And the reason I say that is if you put, if you prepare a line and we'll stick with Honeysuckle because we've begun with her now. Uh, if you prepare a line and you say, right, I, I have X amount of time to get this line out and it's actually a bobbing finish. Do I start it now? If I don't start it now, I'm too late to start it. <laughs> will, will I just find it finished? I don't have finished. I, I, I kind of have it ready. So having a line ready, unless they're sort of eight to ten lengths clear and you can deliver it and then it's never as exciting. Uh, so I've always find found that the line can be easy to write in advance but not easy to land when there's a bobbing finish and you don't want to say it because if they get out on the wrong side of a photo and you've landed your line on the wrong side you, you become social media gold for a bit <laughs> yeah there's a there's a few commentators that become social media gold to be fair but I, I think each commentator has their own value and whatever it is you think about whatever it's it's about personal preference really and that's the thing about broadcasting you can never be all things to everybody if you try to be you will fail miserably. And you just have to accept the fact that some people aren't going to like you, some people are going to like you, and some people are going to be indifferent to you. And that's the very same for commentary, I would imagine. That is, yeah. And I, I think it would be boring if any one person did them all anyway. Um, so to have the variance is good. I think one person would be, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm happy with my, with my lot because, as I say, RTE is... It's covering the 30 best days in Irish racing, and Irish racing is as good as there is anywhere in the world. So to have the Irish Derby into Galway and on into the, the autumn we look forward to now, it should have been down Royal uh, Saturday, but it'll be next week, and on into Troytown and Happens Grace, Morgiana, John Dirk and Hilly Way and into Leperstown Christmas Double Racing Festival. Just to be at all those events is, is exciting, but to be there and be a part of it is great. And I got the back end of Robert and Ted, which was an education and a wonderful one at that. They were very good to me, very supportive. And I think they were brilliant for their time because, you know, they were filling lots of time with no internet. And it was just form books to look up how horses had run previously. And now to have Jane and Ruby and Emish and Fran, and it's, it's, I, th I think each of them lift each other. And they certainly all lift me because the standard of, of work that is done to cover all bases. I, I don't think you realise, uh, my my role as a commentator is is pretty, what's the word, it's manageable. So if I have a line to say, bidding for its third champion hurdle, I, I can drop that whenever I want, and I know I can drop it. But as soon as the horse goes by the line, and rider still panting goes over to Katie Walsh and says, and she says, well, well done. Just think of the small things that she has to ask. She has to go, you, you are bit tight there four out you, you know you were lucky to get out any horse could have won four out she had to be watching anything you dropped your stick coming up the straight any horse could have won she had to know that when they go by the line i'll have the questions for all of them and you, you double yesterday well done and you have three good chances left today and she's no notes and then into any interviewer so to have that homework done that no matter who wins the race you are prepared for the questions, no matter what way it lands. I don't think people realise just how much work goes into that because at the start of an Irish Grand National, you have 30 pieces of information ready and one of them is going to land and you have to be ready for whatever that might be. And it's not just that. It's also the fact that you have a director in your ear and you'll have a producer in your ear as yeah. well and they're counting down to the next section. Mm -hmm. You'll have somebody who's counting down to the commercial break because if that then falls on you, you're the one who has to throw to it if it runs out of time to throw it back to the senior presenter. And that director is not giving you questions. 
They're only focused on the program and how the program is going to work. They're not focused on the editorial content. That's all on the presenter. And that's one of getting to work with Ed for the what it was four or five months that I did ITV in 2018. I was astounded at the like radio is my thing. There's no producer. There's a producer on Talksport feeding me information and telling me when we're going to cut to a commercial break or there's a big story and we need to hit this now. That will happen in radio, all right. But I'm not on camera. I, if I want to panic on my face, I can. Ed has to be a cool, calm presence the whole way through it. It was um, a friend of mine, Evelyn Hester, used to produce it at RTE. And she said, you'll see me on camera. Well, I didn't know you were on, on camera, Evelyn. She goes, oh, no, you won't see my face. You'll see me in Robert Hall's eyes. I'm the one talking to him. Yeah. And if his eyes dart over to the left, it's because I'm telling him to go throw to Brian Gleeson or uh, head to Jane Mangan now that little bit earlier. All of that is an incredible yeah. skill that most people just don't know. Well, I have to say, it's funny you say that because I, I as I said, did my first commentary in 97, I'd say it was 2011 or 12, I did my first RTE commentary. So I'm 15 years, I'm set in my ways, I have my own ways of doing commentary. And then you have something in your ear while you're commentating. And it's, it takes it takes a little bit of time. Uh, it certainly took me a long time to get used to it because invariably when the white flag goes down, what happens in your ear is you say, and they're off. And uh, then everyone goes, now, when this is over, we're going to cut to such and such, which has nothing to do with you. And then they go, oh, and by the way, Richard, Jane is coming in in this race. And you go, okay, that's to do with me. So, uh, yeah, that was the, but I, you're, you're absolutely right. That ability to, to pivot. And I thought one of the best examples we saw of that is when Ted decided to retire live on television and Jane anchored it. If you watch that program back, yeah. that is as good an anchoring of a television program as I've ever seen. Because Ted, Ted was a hard man to, to, to capture. You, you know, you wanted to complement exactly what he brought to the sport, but he was edgy. And and he said things as he as he he said them as he thought them and and Jane just got him and if she had six weeks to prepare for that she couldn't have done a better job so you're right the modern day um, presenter now and, and and the caliber of of what we have is it's phenomenal I, I'm in awe of how good they are to be honest yeah it is phenomenal and we are like it's very easy to scoff at ITV doing the fashion they have to that's an impossible task that that they have because a lot of people are going to be tuning into ITV to watch the chase. Or watch Loose Women. And they're like, what the hell is this? So you have to make it as entertaining yeah. as possible to a wide audience. And that's a gift that racing has. And I, I don't know affordability checks and ban on gambling advertising and the woke culture and all of that. I don't know how long that's going to be able to continue. And if Sky are the ones who take over, for example, if they get the terrestrial rights, they went for it before, I'm sure they'll go for it again. I'm sure they'll do a good job. They've got a, a great team of people racing then moves away completely from terrestrial coverage. And I was only thinking about this the other day. Um, last Saturday, it didn't bother me because I've got racing TV and, and Sky Sports Racing. But uh, if if I was down in Cork and I didn't have the racing TV subscription with me, um, I'm sure that I'd just be able to put it on the old Apple TV. But for those who are in a house where there's not racing TV as a subscription and not everybody wants to pay 40 quid a month for that, and if you don't have a Sky Sports subscription, you had no racing at the weekend. And that's a, a Group 1 race at Doncaster and Cheltenham. For whatever reason, Virgin decided not to cover it. And in Ireland, we can't access ITV through Sky without putting in a four-digit code, and you can't record it, you can't pause, and you can't rewind it. None of that's ITV's fault, but it's just a very different landscape from even 10 years ago when it was the BBC and Channel 4 covering it in the UK. We have full access to that. Obviously, they're two major terrestrial channels that have huge audiences in Britain. Or to year, they're covering what we know they're going to be covering uh, all the big events. 
but a Saturday you would have horse racing. For a lot of people in Ireland, you don't have horse racing on a Saturday now. Yeah, it's and, and we're heading in a direction where there, there are a lot of meetings we could miss, but that's that's a oh, whole topic in itself now, dear. I mean. <laughs> dear me. I'm not sure that's my area of expertise, but you're right. I mean, if if, if we lose what we could lose, I, I don't think people have thought through the full ramifications of that. Uh, maybe they have, but, but yeah, hopefully we come out of the right side. Yeah, listen, I, I understand that Gambling can be destructive for some people. And Abby McGregor and I have talked about this endlessly on the podcast. We interviewed Dr. Robert Lefebvre, a GP who runs a clinic dealing with addiction. He himself had a gambling addiction. He's uniquely qualified to talk about it. He made it very, very clear. It is not the government's place to come in and tell somebody what they can and can't do with their own money. And it's not the government's place to come in and regulate addiction. That has to be done medically. And if if you are, if you're not well, Hopefully you will get the help that you need, but it's it's a crazy time. And the way things are going in Ireland, we are going to lose racing TV and Sky Sports Racing uh, because the ban on gambling advertising means there is no exemption for both of those channels. And both of their CEOs have said, if we don't get the exemption, we will switch off the broadcast in Ireland. And the government have made it very, very clear. Yeah, if they gave them an exemption, it would be in a monopoly, so they won't do it. I have two boys, they're age nine and seven. When I was their age, for right or wrong, I'd have my 50p placed on the tote, the little pink tickets with the braille on them. You're probably not sure if you're the right uh, generation to remember those. Um, and I knew if and I grew up besides Sligo races, if I was given five pound at the start of the day, I could put it on the favourite in the first. And if it won, good, good for me. And if it was beaten, I, I had a long day. Or I could buy a Mars bar, a can of Coke, and maybe have 50p each way on the first and sort of spread my, spread my load, as it were. But... I don't know how I give them the value of money the way I got it. Um, and to learn to win and to learn to lose and to, and to be exposed to that. And not saying exposing them to gambling age nine and seven, that's, that's not where I'm at. But, you know, they're going to get to an age of 18 where at the moment they can't lose a GAA match. Uh, they can't lose a bet. Now, they're fairly aware when United or Liverpool lose, the disappointment is there for them. So we can't hide it from them, nor should we. But... Yeah, we just need to be, you know, we do need to expose them to 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 an amount. And that's the way I learned. I grew up having my 50p plays. I, I very, very rarely have a bet now. And I think I learned that I didn't like to lose. But but you're absolutely right. We need the supports in place for those people who, um, who, who, who it doesn't come so easily to. Yeah, participation trophies are all very well and good, but it doesn't teach you anything. And when you're on a football field and you've lost a game, it's a brutal feeling. It's also a brutal feeling when it would have been often the case for me being picked last. It was a joy if I was picked second last uh, to play in the yeah. football. And I don't even know if that's the case anymore. Like, is that all uh, done away with? I mean, that builds character. It's not It's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling when you're bullied, by the way. But it, uh, all of that adds something to you. You learn something from that. You, you learn a character. And I, I don't know if that's being handed to the younger generation now. Well, all I do know is if you get them wrapped up in their wet, dirty clothes and bring them to a point-to-point field and roll them around the mud, they get a good resistance to bacteria and an exposure to Irish rural life. So we, we can retain some of what we need to do to parent them. Uh, you were saying you you don't bet. Is that because of the, the ethical reasons of commentating, siding no, with the horse? Um, not at all. I don't not bet. Um, I bet. Um, I, I love value, and I love, but I love ridiculous value. So I love Cheltenham because I was on Afferdale Fury at two hundred and twenty to one this year, <laughs> because that's what you can get in Cheltenham. Yeah. Um, and and I think Maxine O'Sullivan's winner in the Fox Hunters at one hundred and twenty to one. So you know, Damn. horses that you know, you don't necessarily expect them to win, but they're not. 
the price that they are that week. Uh, but I, I just, I used to find there was a time about eight to 10 years ago when the point of pointers weren't really known and nobody was watching them. And you knew, you know, these things could go a bit and, and the form was starting to work out of a particular maiden and something would be dropped in 12, 14 to 1. Well, the winner's won, the third has won, this finished second. I think of a chance here, but I think even now with point of pointing, people are on it, they get it, they know they know what to follow and they're right. It's become easier to follow. Um, so, yeah, unless I'm getting ridiculous value, I'm far too miserable to lose money at, at, at betting. But there's no <laughs> principles involved, no. <laughs> well, on the the point to point scene, I mean, obviously, it is massively, massively fashionable now. When I got into racing, it's not an exaggeration to say that certainly in the nineties, for my uncles, if there was one winner at the Cheltenham Festival, that was an a major major achievement, and everybody was celebrating it. Um, now the Presbury Cup is no longer a thing because, well, what's the point? We're going to win it, and it's it's an incredible transformation. So I'll, I'll come to the point to pointers in a second, but the rise of Irish racing. And the dominance of Irish racing from Aidan O'Brien, Willie Mullins, Gordon Elliott, and the entire team. Um, obviously, Henry de Bromont, you almost don't want to leave anybody out, Gavin Cromwell, and, and everybody else uh, who's able to go over there and, and do so well. What do you put that down to? What do you think is the reason that Ireland is dominating in the way it is in jumps racing? Um, well, you can put it down to a very small number of things, really, because if you look at the Prestonbury Cup and remove Willie and Gordon and Henry you know, who are three people, and they are but three people, and, and they absolutely lift the Gavin Cromwells, the Peter Fahys, who get winners at festivals like these, John McConnell. So they lift them in terms of, because they're competing from every single day. But those three people are the Presbury Cup in terms of making the difference, and, and, and that's what it is. And I think probably when Martin Pipe came into England, uh, people had to raise their game to, to, to match what he did. And then you look at the Nicky Hendersons and Paul Nichols. But just at the moment... Um, the results that Willie seems to be able to get, um, it has changed the industry and it really has changed the industry. I mean, you look at the Down Royal Chase, for instance, you know, it used to have Florida Pearl, looks like trouble, Beaver Salmon, Kicking King, War of Attrition. I think they all ran in it. But now, you know, Willie, wouldn't, you would never expect him to have an entry in it. So it actually has changed racing, you know, because he has such a, a hold on it with such success with it. So I think a very small group of people have made a huge difference. And I suppose you can nowadays, which you couldn't do 25 years ago, you go onto a website and you look at the stats and you say, in the balance of probability, the man best fitted to get me to the winner's enclosure in Thurlis or Cheltenham is, is WP Mullins and G. Elliott isn't far behind. And people are quite ruthless with their with their allocation of horses, I suppose. So I, I can only imagine that's what it is. Yeah, and most of the focus of attention is on Willie. And I went back through the stats just before the, the new season just to see how have things changed in 20 years. First of all, Gordon Elliott was writing for Martin Pipe at the Cheltenham Festival in 2003, so things were, were just a little bit different. But Willie had 13 runners at that Cheltenham Festival. He had 35 at the 2013 Cheltenham Festival. and 76 at the 2023 one. Uh, Nicky Henderson has stood still. I mean, he's evolved. He's the man who has the arguably the greatest horse in training and definitely the best hurdler in training. But he had 21 runners at the 2003 festival, 39 in 2013, back to 21 uh, this year. Paul Nichols, again, same where he was, 18 runners in 2003, one winner, 30 at 2013, back down to 16 for 2023. And, and that makes me even more impressed with Gordon, because in 2013, obviously he was a jockey in 2003, so he had 11 runners in 20, 2013. This year he had 57 runners, mostly when we're talking about the, Mull the Mullins dominance. People aren't mentioning the fact that 
Gordon has has that uh, in, incredible dominance as well. And I'd imagine an awful lot of what Gordon is doing is learning from Martin. Because when people talk about the fact that you have this dominance of, of these two trainers who are bringing over so many horses, I, I've yet to hear anybody mention that man's name, Martin Pipe. Martin Pipe had 57 runners at the 2003 Cheltenham Festival. Now, the quality was different. He had two winners, at least, Royal Predica in the Amateur Riders Race and Lieberman in the Champion Bumper. Uh, he had multiple runners in, in the Coral Cup, eight runners in the Potemus Final, nine runners in the Coral Cup. I don't remember anybody complaining in 2003 that this Martin Pipe's a pesky swine. We're going to have to limit how many runners he has. But now that it's Willie and Gordon, suddenly, yeah, limit the amount of runners in a Grand National for one trainer. Yeah. <laughs> is there a question in there? <laughs> do you do you feel that bias is a little bit unfair? I, no, it is unfair. I mean, I, I'm all for open competition. So, I mean, perfect world. I wish every trainer was of equal um, quantity and therefore quality as well. And, and it would be slightly more interesting. But if, if Willie can outperform the rest, it's for the rest to, to catch up. And Gordon is the second, he's built the second biggest national hunt uh, training operation in the history of, of Irish racing, um, you know, in terms of quantity and, and quality and grade ones. And, you know, it's, it's enormous. Um, so I'm all for open competition in a perfect world. Wouldn't it be great if they were spread amongst more trainers? It'd probably make my job in the RTE t- side of things. You know, it would it'd make it more interesting if we five different stories at the end of the day in Bunchestown and not interviewing Willie five times. And he's very generous with his time. But mm. um, open competition is what it is. And, and it's there to be shot at. And if you were to say, uh, when Martin Pike was at the peak of his powers, that it wasn't going to be forever. You'd have been, you know, ah, well, look at, you know, how could anyone catch him? And then Paul Nichols had his unbelievable era. Like, yeah. you know, he, there were so many good horses. He had to go to Ireland to pick off, you know, bringing over oh, Tidal Bay and those horses to win our chases to try and spread his load. Then Nicky Henderson at his time, and now it's Willie, and it is on a different scale, but. It won't be forever, but it'll be for a while longer. <laughs> but even uh, Michael Dickinson had the one, two, three, four, five in the Gold Cup, and look, that's way before my time. But Paul, there were articles being written about can Paul Nichols replicate Michael Dickinson? I don't remember. There was there was definitely a little bit of bitterness towards Paul Nichols' success on Saturdays. That all the big Saturday races were being mopped up by him and Nicky, and they were splitting them between themselves. And there was a little bit of sourness in the British media that it was all in the balance of power of, of two men. And where was the fairness for everybody else? But not to the extent that you see the negativity for Willie Mullins now. And it's, it's very much a British media thing. It, it is a, it's a British media thing in trying to belittle what Aidan O'Brien achieves to a certain extent. There's a sneeriness there. Oh, sure, of course he's winning. He's got all the best horses. Well, I went down through the stats for Charlie Appleby. My God, there's a man who's handed incredible amounts of talent. Now, it's been a bad season for him, and I've no doubt that Charlie Appleby will be very much on top of the summit again in years to come, and he's got a, a very nice Group 1 winning two-year-old to look forward to for next year. But it just it seems as though, it, it's to a certain extent, particularly in the, in the old-school British establishment media, there's... Um, I, had a, I had a big, long debate with Prof Scott in the press room, and he won't mind me saying this, where he was saying that in 2018 that there should be a limit on owners having runners at Cheltenham. And the only reason he was mentioning it is because Michael O'Leary was, yeah, exactly. Michael O'Leary was leading owner at the Cheltenham Festival again. Now, he couldn't have known, nor would I have known, that Michael O'Leary was going to downsize in the way that he did. He's now back, by the way, and, and roaring back in a, in a massive way. But even in that small time frame, it has changed dramatically where he was the leading 
and literally the Irish champion owner, the leading owner at the Cheltenham Festival, he barely had a horse in training the last couple of years. Suddenly he's ramping back up again. If that's British trainers, it's celebrated that Paul Nichols has the one, two, three in the Gold Cup. And people are advocating, that establishment media type were advocating that he'd have the one, two, three, four, five. And how was he going to do it? But now that it's Willie Mullins who's doing it, it's oh, something's got to be done about this pesky Willie Mullins and this Gordon Elliott. We've got to restrict the number of horses they can run in graded races and in the Grand National. I have to say, I think the overwhelming, and I'm over in Cheltenham every month from now till, till May at sales. So I, I have a lot of interaction with English trainers, agents, owners. I, I would have no hesitation in saying the overwhelming um, mood is is just respect for Willie Mullins. Mm-hmm. There's a degree of frustration. I mean, if I race you every single day and you always win, I respect that you win, but I'm frustrated that I can't get by you. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a frustration that he is as good as he is, and that ups other people to, to, to be as good as they can be. But I, I do think predominantly and overwhelmingly, it's it's respect for what he does, marvel at what he does. I mean, he's doing things that I certainly didn't think was possible when I came into the sport. I don't think Willie Mullins thought this was possible. Yeah. Um, look, you'll see a few articles that, that might, you know, restricting runners and stuff like that. It throws out a, an alternative. I don't think there's anything realistic in it. And it creates a bit of discussion. But I do think most people respect what he does. And, and he's easy to respect. He's a, he's a man of huge integrity. Oh, absolutely. And, and definitely, I mean, I, I speak to a lot of British trainers. They would have nothing but the height of respect for him. There are Irish, Irish yeah. trainers who would have nothing but the height of respect for him as well. It, it's definitely, it's a media thing. Um, and there would be Irish mm-hmm. trainers who would sigh at the sight of another Willie Mullins novice appearing in. They've, they've just pinpointed a nice little maiden for that novice hurdler that they're really excited by. And there's Willie Mullins with another Rich Ritchie entered horse. Um, in terms of the strength and depth of Irish racing, though, the novice hurdlers at the Cheltenham Festival last season were all dominated, with the exception of the Mayor's Novice Hurdle, by Irish trained horses. And I wonder if, looking at a horse like Hermes Allen, who was sent off a massively well-backed, incredibly short-priced favourite for the Ballymore, which was interesting because there was huge support for Imperia Pass and massive confidence behind him, and yet there was still this sustained weight of money Hermes Allen, and I don't think it's he's a bad horse, but I wonder if the races he was running in, he's not really competing against the standard of horse that we have in Ireland. And so when our novice hurdlers are going over to Cheltenham and Aintree, they've been engaged in high-level, high-intensity quality battles, and they're a little bit more forward than the British ones who, when you have an elite one like Hermes Allen, he's not really having to beat anything of any real substance. And the only time he did was on horrible ground in the cello hurdle where a lot of horses just didn't handle the surface. I don't know about that. I mean, there, there are instances where we race in competitive races, but when you have someone at Paul Nichols' ability and he gets three runs into Hermes Allen and he wins a grade one shallow, whatever calibre you want to call it, Paul Nichols will be able to produce the very best Hermes Allen on the line. I think what probably got behind him is the old days of when we had won Galmoy or won Denali. We, we focused our attention when Beaver Salmon went over, Florida Power went over and led the charge. So just when you haven't as many to spread your, like Imperial Pass is, is, is an incredible talent, but going over to Cheltenham, he was just one of Willie's artillery. So we didn't really know where to land as his banker. Whereas when point. you're looking from an English perspective, just at the moment, you know, they were looking for Braveland's game could be a gold cup shot. Irma Zelen could be our emerging novice hurdler. We'd all rally in behind him and a whole country gets behind him as we did as under, not underperformers, that's not fair, but as people who weren't coming away with a great deal of success when Beaver Salmon was going over and Florida Power was going over, running crackers or races, Doran's Pride won the stairs but didn't win a gold cup. Even back to your flashing steels running in gold cups. But we had to follow them because we didn't have other horses of that calibre. I think 
It's probably more of it than than the competitive because Paul Nichols is far too capable of producing an imperial pass or an arm as a lane if he has him in his yard. Yeah, he's a point-to-pointer I want to talk to you about a little bit later on who I think could be very, very special if what I've been told about him is true and the hype is starting to build about that horse. But on the Irish point-to-point scene, so we know what are the great tracks in Ireland and the great tracks in the UK and where form is going to be very, very valuable going forward. Is that the same in the point-to-point scene? Are there certain point-to-point tracks that immediately if a horse wins a point-to-point there, it's a prestigious track, so you got to take it seriously? It used to be uh, when I started sort of actively point of pointing, and I suppose I've been actively point of pointing since the 90s. Uh, there were certain tracks that you, you kind of expected better caliber horses. But nowadays, with the polarization we've just discussed and described with Willie and Gordon, we've a little bit of that happening in point of pointing. So yards like Colin Bow, Dennis Murphy, Duncan Doyle, they have a good quantity of horses. And there are only so many four year old maidens, there'd be roughly 70 odd in the spring and 30, 40 in the autumn. And like any yard, they tend to come to hand together. They're healthy together. They're fit together. So you just have to run them to monetize them. So I certainly drive into every field nowadays with a very, very open mind uh, because they can't afford to sit and wait. They have to let them roll. Um, and, and most of our tracks are perfectly acceptable to run any, tra- any horse on. So that focusing on a track is, is not something I notice anymore. And for those who are new to racing or are switching from the flat to the jumps, why is the Irish point-to-point scene which is amateur, but it's run in a professional way. Why is that so far ahead of the British point-to-point scene, which is very popular? It's, it's the same, but it's, I suppose it's a different sport in many respects. I mean, I looked at a piece of footage on the British Path website from the 1950s from a point-to-point in Creakenstown in North Dublin. And it's a, I think it's done by the BBC and the announcer, and you can imagine the, the, the sort of tone of voice they had at the time, and he says... Thousands of people lined the streets to see this point-to-point. Exactly, exactly that. And at the very end, he talks about the wonderful crowds and the, the whole lot. And he, he said something interesting uh, for our conversation here. He said, so if you've just seen the next Gold Copper Grand National winner, don't say we didn't tell you first. So what that tells me and tells us is even in the 1950s, the guy who walked into Creekenstown saying, what is this point of point, left thinking there may be a horse that emerges from it. So it, I suppose what I'm saying is it's, it's always been thus, certainly long before I was involved, that it was an emerging place to prove horses. And back then and for a long time, the English had more money than us and they came over and they, they bought the best of what we had and, and horses were something we were good at. And we've always been a trading country as well. I mean, you know, you talk about point of pointing, but even if you look at the breeze ups or our, our yearling market, we're a country of people who produce and, and we're, we're, we trade. Um, so point of pointing facilitates that and I think it facilitates it to a modern day society and I think modern day society has people who have done well in life and and they want to try and get what they want to try and get and and none of us like to wait anymore we want something as quickly as we possibly can and point of pointing provides that in, in many instances you've got a relatively quick turnaround and the style of racing changes over time like the for a for a strong period there's still uh, ex-flat horses who are very popular to be bought by um, jumps owners and jumps trainers who, who are seeking them. It's harder to get them now because if you've got a high-class handicapper on the flat, that horse is probably going to be sold, but he's going to be sold to another jurisdiction. Hong Kong will want them, Australia, America, various other different ones. And if if an elite uh, jumps owner wants to acquire a decent flat handicapper or even a, a graded class one, it's not going to be, there's going to be plenty of other people who want to acquire those horses too. And for a, it seems to me that for a period of time, that type of ex-flat racer was really in vogue. And that was the one that people wanted to get. And the Irish point-to-pointer had kind of fallen by the wayside. And then the French invasion came along 
and the likes of Cotto Star, people wanted to get the French horse and they would be maybe that little bit more progressive and ready to go. You could get a, a ex-French horse could easily be a juvenile hurdler. An ex-flat horse can easily be a triumph hurdle horse. That's not what a point-to-pointer is going to be, but that's gone full circle now. And now everybody wants a point-to-pointer. All of the elite British trainers and all of the elite Irish trainers and all of those major owners, that's what they're coveting. Yeah, like you, you've hit on the core of what has happened over the last sort of 20 years. And, and it's something I often describe. Foot and mouth had a huge, huge influence on why we're here having this discussion. Wasn't the sole reason, but a huge influence. What foot and mouth did is it cancelled half of the spring season 01. So the point of point season was effectively cut in half and lost. Um, and to make up for it, they had an autumn season uh, to allow, for the first time ever, we raced October, November, December, capturing the meetings we'd lost and running them at that time of year to run the horses. And then as we're running into Celtic Tiger, we've the money to keep it going. So we kept it going. So why does that make a difference? That makes a difference because previous to that, Tom Costello, Padgeberry, and a few people like that, alongside an existing business, sold a few horses and were very, very good and successful at it. But after that, it now became long enough, the season became long enough to structure an entire business around it. So I don't believe Colin Bowe could have done what he does today in 1999. Uh, I don't think without that extra three months and that ability to, to be turning money for most of the year, he couldn't have just zoned in as as, as as focused as he has. So also at the turn of the century, you have um, you have the Internet doing two things. It is exposing those flat horses you've just described all over the world. And now they're starting to be farmed to every cut. Now, this took time. It started at the turn of the century, but it took 10 years to evolve, if you like. So flat horses start to go all over the world. And the National Hunt Purchaser probably maybe didn't even realize that he's finding it harder to buy one type of horse. But now there's this other type of horse that has been more supplied because there is an autumn season and it's a little bit easier to buy him. So he will buy him because he's easier to buy. He's in front of him, he's for sale and it's a legitimate sale. There's no untoward reason why he's for sale. At the same time, it's it's a factor, but it's only part of the story. P2P.ie is set up so you can go online, you can watch the race, you can look at the time of the race, how did the second horse run the next time or the previous time. So you can assess the form. You don't need your man in Ireland to tell you how your horse, you know, the horse you're about to buy is. You can have your own opinion on it. Um, and then the select sales had a factor as well. So again, instead of trusting what a horse might look like, they're brought to Cheltenham or they're brought to these venues. And you look at the horse yourself and you say, yeah, I, lo- I like the look of him. I liked his video. I like the fact that the time was fast. I like the fact that the runner-up won the next time. And I'm prepared to pay for that. And then when you get to 2015, and that's a, an interesting year because the BHA did an entire jump review in 2015. And uh, it, it ascertained where have horses come from before they have their first run in a national hunt race in the UK. And the graph of flat horses just is falling off a cliff. Whoa. And the graph of point-to-point horses is taking off. So in the year 2009, there were 1,900 flat horses had their first run in England in a jumps race. By the year 2014, that dropped to 1,000. It almost fell in half. And in the same period, in 2009, 900 Irish point-to-pointers had their first run in an English track race, national hunt race, rising to 1,400 in 2014. And this is the BHA line in 2015. They haven't done a similar report since, so I'd love to see it. It is only going to be further along this journey. And it says the source of horses into jump racing has shifted significantly, with far fewer horses having their first run on the flat compared to three to five years ago. The downturn in the number of flat horses going jumping has created a reliance on Irish point of points. So the BHA in 2015 described a reliance on Irish point of pointing 
as a source of jump horses. And it finishes off to say, Irish Point of Point has overtaken flat racing as the most popular source of previously raced horses. So in that regard, you start to talk about prices, supply and demand in any economic situation is going to play a role. They're winning more races. They're, they're, they're being paid better. The lads are going back to the store sales. They're buying a better caliber of horse. So the Faheen, which was kind of the freak, he didn't cost a lot of money, turned out to be exceptional. His page wasn't stacked with winners. The money that would have bought a Faheen allows the buyer to go back to the store sales and buy a better one, sell, buy a better one. And now you see them buying at the, you know, the best of sales, the Derby sale, buying the Jerry Coloms, who are beautiful individuals, well-bred. They win their point of point. Yeah, they're sold for good money, but on the balance of probability, they have a far better chance of reaching the top of the game and the supply is not coming from where it used to come from. That's amazing. And it's amazing how that all transpired from the foot and mouth disease, which... Well, look, internet, foot and mouth, yeah, but but they all came... It was like a perfect storm and nothing working. Like P2P was set up independently. Foot and mouth was certainly a freak. Uh, the internet was emerging at that time. And the stars just it aligned for point of pointing. Didn't necessarily all align for jump racing because now it gets jump racing a shade more one dimensional. I, I think the Istabraks and the Cravences and the Royal Gates bring a, a great balance to it. And we won't have probably them in the same well, we would never have the same supply. Again, there are very few people able to keep that caliber of horse in England jumping for Ireland. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I loved Hurricane Fly so much. That he was just that little bit different. He had he had that Istabrak class and he bought he was a better flat horse than Istabrak. Um and he had everything. He had absolutely oh, everything. I loved that racehorse. Absolutely loved him. And I also loved the fact that he was a bit of a bastard. Like he, uh, <laughs> he, he, the first year he won the champion hurdle, Willie Mullins was limping. And people didn't know why. And he openly, anybody who was asking him, he was telling them. It's because Hurricane Fly bit him <laughs> on the arse. Uh, he, was, he was a vicious so-and-so. At the races, back the old ATR, I had that great video of um, Rich Ritchie uh, standing in front of Hurricane Fly at his box and saying how much admiration he had for him. And as soon as he said that, and saying, oh, you know, Faheen will have to come up to this, and he comes along and takes his hat and tries to bite his head off. Um, he was he was a vicious so-and-so, but an incredible racehorse. And it's, it's amazing what being at a racetrack can do and how uh, the memories that you, you get in person being at a racecourse like seeing a horse win, seeing Moscow Flyer win that champion chase and seeing him regain it in that incredible Tinkle Creek, that was all on television for me. And yet it still meant a great deal to me. In my opinion, best two-mile chaser of all time. Sorry, Sprinter Sacra, Moscow would have taken you. Um, but being at, at the Irish champion hurdle with Vanessa Ryle and Noel Hayes, uh, seeing him win his fifth and the reaction from the crowd, and he was beaten. At the halfway point, Hurricane Fly was toast and suddenly... The crowd lifted him home, and Ruby just got, he came back on the bridle, and it was game over once he loomed up alongside Jeski. That's a moment I will never, ever forget. It's an incredible sporting moment to be there for that. It will, and you talk about, you know, we, we began with the privilege of doing what I do, because if people say, what was your favourite horse to commentate on, and as, as loyal as I am to point to pointers, it's always Hurricane Fly, because he always delivered. You could trust him in a close finish. You could nearly... Listen, give it, give him the full Monty here because he's he's going to get up. And I remember that race probably better than anyone I called because I was I was tentative going down the back straight. So I, I can't say Hurricane flies in trouble in Leprestown. Like he's never in trouble in Leprestown. And eventually I brought myself to say, um, this isn't where Ruby would ideally be with Hurricane Fly if everything was as it should be. That's how I described it. It's just I'm not gonna say he's going badly, but it just doesn't look like where I normally expect him and Ruby to be. And then the win the way he did, it was 
Oh, it was it was an incredible, incredible performance. But he was that he, he won more grade ones than any other jump horse. So you know, when you talk about the greats, I, I I'm fascinated with all the other names that get thrown in before he does. Yeah, it's it's nonsense. And the Aussies try to claim then that they've got a horse that won more grade ones than get out of it. It's all, all about the Northern Hemisphere and all about the jumps game, Hurricane Floor. We're, we're all jumps at the moment. Still yeah, yeah. The jumps, we? Uh, well, they've oh, only got yeah. their sprinters anyway. They've, they've got their, their well, decent they, flat well, handicappers and they're all ex-Northern Hemisphere horses. They can't breed those. Uh, wouldn't say three miles around yeah, damn right he wouldn't. Absolutely. Winks would have been toast in Hurricane Fly's uh, backyard. But no, a magic racehorse. But he's a flat horse. The point to pointers I want to talk to you about. And the money that they're going for. It's great value to be had in the point to point scene in Ireland. You're talking about high six figures. Um, and, and a lot of these horses are private purchases. So we'll never really know. Rumors come out and. There's all kinds of different speculation about what a certain horse would have gone for, but we only have to look at the public sales ring to see how much these horses are going for. Does it make sense to you that the Irish point-to-pointers are reaching the astronomical figures that they are? To, to people like you and I, um, to, to spend 100000 on anything, I mean, outside of a house, probably most of us will never spend 100000 on anything at all, ever. So you, you, normal people like ourselves, we, we struggle to, 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 to get our head around any of this. So it probably did take a while for me to understand how any animal could make that sort of money. But it does make sense. Um, it makes sense to me in the context that um, the supply and demand we've just described. So if you have done well, and people have done extremely well. I think there are more people with more wealth now than there were when we were growing up. Yeah. And they've made, you know, when we were growing up, a millionaire was like, whoa, you know, if you got a million, you were there. But now, the way, the way of the world, there are people with tens and tens and hundreds of millions. And they want something quick and they're entitled to because they've done well in business and they want to enjoy it. Um, so we know that the flat supply is not really available to them. Um, so now they've got to pivot and go, well, what is available to Well, the jump supply is available. I remember... I remember, I think it was Asterian for Lange made 280,000. He won a point of point in Old Town. And he won well. He was impressive. But from what I recall, someone's going to look this up now and call me a liar. But anyway, uh, I won't be far wrong. I think when the five or six horses lined up for that race, they stood 300,000. That's what it would have cost to buy them at sales. And then you would have had to break them and train them and go through the disappointments. And then they all turned up in Old Town, among, along with the horses that didn't turn up because they weren't so good and they had setbacks and all the rest of it. So they made... They, they cost 300000 to get to the start as stores. Not, nothing to do with point of points. They, 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 they cost that as stores. And then he won, and, and Joe Donnelly arrives in, and he gives 280000 for him. It's like, how, how can you justify 280000 He effectively chose to say, look, guys, that's your gig. Effectively, what he said is, you work away, and when you work out which is the fastest, I, I'll pay for him. He's the one I want. I don't want the fellow who finished fifth or pulled up at the third last. It's not really, I get into too many numbers in that. So I'm going to refine it. And I've done well enough in life to be able to do that. So I'm happy to do that. Um, and that's sort of in that moment, I kind of got to see, well, that's how they make 280. And very simple supply and demand after that. So if you want to find, you know, 30% of all Cheltenham Festival runners will emerge from Irish Point Pointing. So that's, if you rule it out, you're ruling yourself out of 30%. That's what it is. And um, when you have horses to fly the flag for you from your best mates to your fawheens to your Florida pearls and beef for salmons and on into your honeysuckles and now Constitution Hills, Brave Man's Games and Jerry Columns. So if you have arrived on this level of wealth and you want to be part of the, the show that is horse racing, that is what the underbidder is prepared to give 
And that is what you want. And I suppose what I get a little bit frustrated with is, isn't it wonderful that people who do do well want it that much? And they want to give two, 300,000, whatever it is, to somebody in Ireland who turns that money so fast. They don't put it into a, a, a great big building and try and take a rental income for the rest of their days. They roll it straight back into the store trade, who roll it straight back into the foal trade, who goes right back down to the thousands of breeders in Ireland. And I, I'm fascinated by those who, who, who are critical of it. I mean, investment into Ireland in any way, shape or form, new jobs in Ireland, new factory opening up, great new story. Somebody gave 400,000 to a point of point counter. Ha ha, ha He's got plenty of 20, 30 grand horses at home that haven't been as good as this fella. And this is the one that has to fly the flag and, and cover the ones that aren't so good. And the, the bigger owners, and we all know their names, are prepared to step back and say, when you've it all worked out, go for it. I think the biggest difference nowadays, though, is when I began, there was an element of a horse would win and be impressive. And then there was a scramble. Who's Emmett that owns this horse? This Emmett Kenny, who owns it? Gosh, I don't know. He bought it off Richard Pugh. Who's Richard Pugh? And you're scrambling to find out the horse's story. Where did he come from? What's his pedigree? What did he cost? Nowadays, again, internet and, and, and success, people are gathering information much more. So what seems to be happening is all the agents look at all the stores and they put their notes beside them and say, I like him, I don't like him. Whether they're buying him or not, they have all their notes. Then said point-to-point handler buys a certain quantity of them. So then the agents in January will go around and they look at the crop of just turning four-year-olds um, and say, look, which ones do you like? Yeah, listen, see that fellow there? He's, he's ate up everything I've asked him to do. He goes back into the box, he eats up, he comes in the next day looking for more. Had a bit of a setback with him. He's a bit, you know, he's a bit behind. So you get a sense of, okay, well, this particular Flemingsworth always seems to be doing what he's asked to do. Then there's a couple of schooling races and you go, yeah, look, he's, he's, he's taken them really well. So by the time he wins his point to point, it is the very last piece of a very long jigsaw. And you're saying, okay, well, if he looked at cracking store last June at the Derby sale and he took his work really well and everybody thought he, he did everything you could ask him to do throughout the winter. And then he turned out in Tattersall's point to point and he won 10 lengths. On the balance of probability, he's going to be a better racehorse than anything else I can buy. Um, and buying a racehorse is no different to having a bet. They will let you down. If it was that easy, there wouldn't be fun in it. They will let you down for any number of reasons that good horses throw in a bad run or, or lose their form and never find it again. They will let you down. But if you want the chance of getting a real, real racehorse, statistically, buying Irish four-year maiden point-to-point winners, there's nothing even a close second to it. And I say that in the context of saying, take go pre-COVID here, because once you get into COVID, all the stats go upside down. So in the 10 years from 2010 to 2019, the autumn four-year maiden winners have an 88% chance of winner, winning or being placed on the track. And the spring ones have an 86% chance of winning or being placed on the track. You can interview and have podcasts until you're finished with everyone in the industry. No one is going to get anywhere next or near close to that. That's phenomenal. And it puts a completely different perspective on, like, it's very, very easy to take to Twitter after a £400,000 purchase has been beaten and he's made in hurdle and go, no, see those clowns, they don't have a clue. But when you realise that that's, yeah. that's actually, first of all, the BHA saying there is a reliance on Irish on the Irish point-to-point right. industry, like, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll take that, BHA. Thanks very much. Um, 
but also the fact that the win percentage of ex-Irish point-to-pointers in racing, like you're, you're basically buying a winner. And we've said it before on the show, the most valuable commodity in racing is potential. When you're at the sales and you're splashing out all that money, you could have a Gold Cup winner on your hands. He could be a champion chaser. He could be a champion hurdler. He could be a handicap hurdler on a Saturday. And the best you'll get is a place on ITV racing. That's, it's, it's a journey. And you've no idea where it's going to take you. And whether you're paying 10 grand to acquire that horse or 500,000, it's really, it's in the eye of the beholder. If you're prepared to pay the money for that horse, why should we be in the background steering to if you want to narrow the probability of failure, because failure is inevitable in racing, you know, every horse will ultimately, um, you, you know, they, they, they'll find their level, whatever that is. But if you want to narrow the probability of failure, so if you take, you know, we stopped short in 2020 because of COVID, obviously, and there were about 20 foil maidens run at that time of year, which include Brandy Lowe, grade one winner, Jerry Colon, grade one winner, Hollow Games, and that's the Amarillo Sky, and that's out of the 20. So if you're playing in that pool, you're going, there's a live chance. And you go, well, that must have been a good year. So you go to 2019 and you go, Sporting John, Fernie Hollow, Brave Man's Game, Farouk Delen, Mossy Fenn, Favor, Tell Me Something Girl, Hometown Boy, Israel Champ, The Big Breakaway, Grange Clare Native. They're all coming out of 2019. Well, maybe that was another good year. So you go to 2018, you go, well, Envoilen, Commander of Fleet, Andy Dufresne, The Glancing Queen, Angel's Breath, Estuian Falange, Honeysuckle, Monkfish, Fury Road, Sam's Profile, Runwell Fred, are you getting the idea? So I can go down to the bottom of the list. Oh, he's calling the good ones. Yeah. So if you go down to the bottom of the list, feel my pulse. I don't know if feel my pulse has ever run. Um, I've got to look him up now just to be sure. Feel my name. pulse looked as good as you don't know the name. No. So feel my pulse. Yeah, he didn't run. He cost 330,000 Shelton Festival sale. He was part of that year. And obviously something went wrong. But at the moment in time, he went by the line. In that particular year, which was, you know, that's a strong list of, of graduates from one year that you're ever going to pull out. Something obviously went wrong with him. But had that setback not befallen him, I'm telling you now, he'd have been calling in, fall in, feel my pulse, the student for launch when he's up. But that's the the, the, the the precarious nature of horses, that some will just go the wrong direction, be unlucky, something happens to them. And, and had he, let's say he turns up now, eight or nine, and and, and turns up in a bumper and he, he runs below par because he's at all the troubles that, that have kept him this long. And yeah, Twitter's going to be alive with, oh, 330,000. It's not a guarantee, but it is the closest thing to a guarantee that horse racing over jumps can offer. Even if you go like way back in the day, um, anybody who's of the older persuasion is going to be like, do it back in the day. Be for Salmon wasn't back in the day. But for those young guns who have come into the sport, they only know the memory of Be for Salmon, might not have seen him. His pedigree, nobody was excited about that horse. Nobody would have looked at that pedigree and thought, oh yeah, there's there's the makings of a champion. And he turned out to be one of the most legendary Irish horses of all time, a 10-time grade one winner and a million pounds in prize money. I'm pretty sure Martin Pipe had his half-brother. Didn't cut the mustard at all. But there was something about him that it all just came together. And that's that's the magic of this sport. It's not a perfect science. You can take your grade one winning mare and mate her to walk in the park you're breeding a champion you can take her to Yates there's no guarantee that that's actually going to provide the the superstar status and then you could take two random horses uh, and, and produce an absolute superstar it's that's that's a an, there's no guarantees 
in any part of this board. I mean, you can have a bet that is a very logical favourite that you've decided will look at. I mean, it's quite clear on the form that this this has to win and I'm going to have my bet on it and you get beaten. And you look at yourself and go, well, did I get it wrong? Was the horse having an off day, jockey, trainer, ground, you name it. Things things will turn on you. But buying a horse is, is effectively having a bet. So if I have a bet on the winner of the first or any four-year-old maiden in the first today that's running in Turles, somebody else had a bet on that horse by saying, I'm going to buy him, I'm going to put my colours on him, I'm going to run the journey with this horse. And for some people with their honeysuckles, that's one of the best bets they'll ever have. It's, it's a journey of a lifetime. And the chance of that is worth doing when you when you're fortunate enough to have you know the resources and, and you've you've done your thing to get you there. It's a journey that you think if there's a chance I can have that journey, I'd love to do it. And again, I come back to the same point. I just can't understand how, in the context of it being investment into the very sport that we all get so much from, that there's any negative in it. That people are actually prepared to say, no, I've I've won a lot of money. I could buy a yacht. I could buy this. I could buy that. But I'm going to buy a racehorse, and I'm going to buy one out of Ireland, and I'm going to support rural Ireland. I think it's. I think it's a great news story. I'm in the middle of it. You can say I'm biased. I am. But I just think it's a wonderful story for Ireland to be selling and to be proud of. And when you look at Honeysuckle handing the mantle over to Constitution Hill, they both came from Irish point of points. Isn't it just wonderful? Well, maybe Bono summed this up best. And even the second I've mentioned the name Bono, there's going to be people watching this and listening to this going, oh, for God's sake, bloody Bono, that do-gooder pompous sunglasses wearing one of the greatest singers and one of the greatest bands of all time won't hear a bad word said about the guy but he said the difference between an Irishman and an American is that if an American person walks past a mansion they'll look at it and go wow that's amazing someday I'm going to live in a house like that if an Irish person walks past a mansion they'll look at it and go bastard <laughs> it's just there's a, there's a little bit of resentment at somebody doing well there's a little bit of bitterness it, it can't quite to, for some people they can't quite get their heads around the fact that that person has achieved success and is now pursuing pursuing greatness there are like there are plenty of people who will like yourself will greatly admire those who are splashing that cash um and supporting irish racing but there's there's always going to be a subset of certain people who just want to belittle it I think most people get it. I think they get that. Look, we've discussed in a bit of detail here the, the supply, but I think most people, you you led with it. You said less flat horses, and I've I've given you the figures. So I think most people get, well, if there is supply and demand issues and there's less supply in the national market, of course the price will go up. If there are more people with a bit more uh, spare cash, that will push the price up. And if consequently they're winning and getting success in everything from Gold Cups to Champion Hurdles to Champion Chases, that will feed price. Of course it will. And if the stats, I mean, not many people will be able to tell you 88% will win or be placed. But if the feel is that I tend to do okay when I buy one, that will push price. And these are all things that are going to influence price when people go to buy. And then when two people who have the resources go to buy, the price finishes when the last person bids, unless someone bids after them. <laughs> Has the success of Irish point-to-point racing in your mind then and, and the ex-Irish point-to-pointers heading to the Cheltenham Festival, has that then changed the dynamics of what it takes to win there? Because if you look at the... At Cheltenham? Yeah, if you look at the Ballymore Novices Hurdle, that that tended to be the strong the strong trial for the champion. Hardy Eustace, Isterbrack, uh, we can be here all day going through horses who won that and then went on to win a, a champion hurdle. Yeah. Constitution Hill came through from the Supreme and it's 
been 19 dickety-doo since the last time a horse won the Supreme and then won the champion hurdle a year later. I think that was a stat I was hanging on to as I was was taking on Constitution Hill. Now, it might just very well be that he's a complete freak of nature and he'll win everything forever as long as he keeps racing. But I think it's 10 years since a Ballymore winner won the champion. And I wonder is... Is that pedigree change, like the the fact that in flat racing there's such an obsession with speed, and we're seeing now that Adar Westover they're all gone to Japan, at the Antarctic with the greatest respect to Coolmore and the Antarctic he's just been retired to Coolmore Stud, Hurricane Lane, Godolphin got rid of him, gave him to Coolmore, they acquired him for a lot of money. He's going to be a, a national hunt stallion, so we're going to get stamina from those kind of horses. The Yates Hurricane Fly, it's Hurricane Fly. What a great thing if they could just do an operation on him and allow him to be a stallion. Um, Undo it. The meat, the meat and two veg restored. Uh, he, he'd deserve it. But the Japanese bloodstock industry is very keen to support stamina, whereas in Europe, that's a no-no. It's all about sprinters and speed. And that will eventually, at some point, offset to the jumps game. So is that then changing the nature of force we're getting in national hunt racing, that it's not quite the flat, flashy types that we were seeing in an in, in Isterbrack, for example, in a Hurricane Fly, but also as Irish point-to-pointers no, continue to, as, as they continue to ascend up the scale, maybe the, even the type of Irish point-to-pointer becomes faster and, and a speedier bred type than we would have seen back in the early noughties. Okay. I think Pedro's Cross was the first Irish pointer that had a good shape at an Irish uh, at a champion hurdle. There might have been something back in the day now I'm missing, but he was the first of the more modern era that had a good go at it. And I think and he's probably a good example. Like he he gave he was that good. He gave Hurricane Fly a chance and probably never quite recovered. Yeah. So well, Hurricane Fly broke him. A second in yeah, but well, follow that logic through. So let's say the horse that finished second in Volen or second to Denman or second to whatever you want yourself and makes his two hundred fifty thousand. What if mentally it broke him and we're all on Twitter then when it goes wrong? Maybe he was that good, but he put so much effort into it. There are horses that don't recover from certain performances, which, look, you're right. Pedro's Cross was the first one, and and it has changed because you're into Faheen Constitution Hill, uh, Faheen Honeysuckle Constitution Hill, and there's now quite an amount of Irish pointers who can go that route. The one thing you, you, you touched on there, the type of horse that's been bought for Irish point pointing. There was a time you'd say, well, he's a pointer pointer, so he's you know he's a stamina, he's a three mile chaser. Uh, one of the things that amuses me most is when you hear any connection of any horse who is won his bumper in England or Ireland saying, well, we know he stays three mile because he won an Irish point point. You absolutely don't. You absolutely don't. It means the closest thing to nothing in your assessment of a horse that you're going to get. Um, if you take a high class involved in, because we talked about them there, our tracks tend to be a little tighter, certainly than the English point to point tracks. They're, they're, they're huge, big, galloping, ranging tracks. Ours can be a bit tight. And then you have riders of the caliber of Derek O'Connor, Barry O'Neill, Jamie Codds retired from point to point, but he did his thing. Um, their ability to take a good horse and put them to sleep for a mile and a half or two and utilize the natural speed is it's a privilege to watch every Sunday, to be honest. They're that good at it. So you don't need to stay three miles to win an Irish point to point with a good horse because it's so bloody easy for him. For the first mile and a half, he's going to the start. You imagine what Envoilin was doing for the first mile and a half in Balnebula. I'd say, he said, when are we going to get going here? You know, so he didn't stay at three. Whether he's going to stay three miles or not, that was not a relevant piece of information. Um, so now the lads know they can afford to buy 
different profiles of horses. They can buy a two-miler. He can ultimately operate in a point-to-point, a constitutional, and, and come back to two-mile and be very, very, very effective. And the decision was made not to go over fences because they weren't sure he'd stay at three-mile. Well done, you guys, because he may not. And, but I know one thing. The fact that he ran the point-to-point meant nothing. <clears throat> but that is used an awful lot by a number of people in the media. They'll say, oh, that horse won a three-mile point-to-point, so therefore he's going to stay. And that logic disagree with the call. Yeah, that logic is not used. There for- is an odd time now. There, there, but a very odd time around big tracks like Linstown, Tattersalls, Drumahan. If if you've been there and you saw them go a good gallop and it got into a slog, you can say no, he he will stay. I know by the way he's going. I know by the you know the way he hit the line, he'll stay. But most four year olds that I would watch, I might have a, have an opinion whether they're going to be classy, quality, hit a high rating. Might be wrong, but I've an opinion on it. But to say. Oh, he's he's definitely going to be a three miler because he's won over three mile today. I would never leave a field saying that because it is not that type of test for a horse. It might very well be one of the reasons why people are disappointed. Some the Constitution Hill didn't go chasing. I don't get that argument at all. When I went back through the list of champion hurdle winners to see when, how long is it since the last reigning champion hurdle winner went chasing, and the, the answer was staring me in the face. I just wasn't wasn't coming to me until I actually went back through it. Oh, yeah. It was Don Run. For him? It was Don Run back in uh, 38 years ago. The last reigning well, champion. For him went chasing. We're going to give For him one a grade one. We'll give him a uh, Yeah, but he now. wasn't a reigning champion hurdler, though. He wasn't He wasn't the defending champion hurdler going popping a fence. Yes. Whereas that's what uh, people wanted Constitution Hill to do and all kinds of people getting all very upset. The greatest crime in jumps racing. Nicky could have saved the jumps racing industry if only he'd gone novice chasing with Constitution Hill. Like he'd have been 20 to 1 on for his... Uh, novice, the whole thing is, is done now anyway. But Nicky's adamant he wouldn't stay three miles. So people would look at him making that blunder at the last and thinking, oh, well, he he stayed three miles and he's point to point. But did he, though? Did he really? I mean, you just summed that up uh, perfectly. Uh, Nicky Henderson, I'm I, answering for him here, but Nicky Henderson is is unquestionably a genius and he knows what he sees at home. That's where he's gazing it from. I doubt Nicky Henderson sat down and watched the point of point in Tipperary to decide he does or does or doesn't stay. You know, his 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 eye for talent and what talent can and can't do best is why Constitution Hill is or isn't going chasing. No, it is not because he was beaten in Tipperary by any harm in asking. Who are the key players? in the point-to-point game, that when a horse transfers from that trainer to a Willie Mullins, a Paul Nichols, a Nicky Henderson, that we should sit up and take notice? Oh, look, it, it's not that simple. I mean, the key player is Colin Bowie. He's been champion nine or ten times. He's our Willie Mullins, if you like. Um, in terms of producing four-year-old maiden winners and, and quantity and quality, I suppose Donica Doyle and Dennis Murphy are, are probably close behind, and then you have a raft of people. But... That's not to say that, you know, Jerry Cosgrave and Mark O'Hare produced honeysuckle. So, you know, if you have the good fortune and ability to to land on something, you know, the Slattery's produced Faheen, that didn't come through Colin Bow, but he did have Fernie Hollow and Envalin and, and all them other good horses. So, you know, um, they're, they're the big names. They're the people who, who, who do it extremely well. Um, but as I say, it doesn't preclude others who are renewing at Constitution Hill from having a horse and, and giving it the grounding it needs to go on and be as good as it can. I was um, being told earlier on about the link between Slattery and Willie Mullins, the Slattery stable, that Willie acquired Faheen from the Slatteries, he acquired Cooldine from them, and I think he's got... Kellespree. as well, another great great shout. Uh, I believe there's there's some kind of an agreement there where Willie's got first option, or at least he can make the... Whether or not that's actually true, 
but it may just be the fact that they've managed to link up successfully in the past. Um, those kind of relationships Look, are... I suppose, yeah, if you're a punter, you're, you're going to, if you've good success backing such and such a person when they ride for such a trainer at such a track, you, you get a sort of a, an attachment to it, if you like. So I've no doubt if if I'm William Mullins or Gordon, and sometimes we, we hoist them up on a pedestal a bit too much. They're human. If they've good fortune going to a certain trainer, buying a certain type of horse and it's working for them, or going to France, you know, they're, they're going to keep doing it because it works or putting up a certain jockey or going to a certain track with their, you know, Gordon, you expect him to go to Down Royal with his nice type of horse. Down Royal is a very, very good race horse, but if he'd look in thoroughly, he might have followed that trend a few years ago. You know, yeah. people are creatures of habit and, and William Gardner, they're still human, just about. <laughs> superhuman, but just, just, just superhuman. bordering on superhuman. Why are they so good? And Nicky Henderson and Paul Nichols as well. Why do they excel so much with Irish point to pointers? Excel so much with racehorses. Um, sure, Willie's going to bring a Vauban to Melbourne Cup, and apparently he's only going over to collect the cup. The way the way we're listening, so it's not just Irish point of pointers. Um, and and Gordon has had his success outside of Irish pointers as well. Look, I I don't know why we're surprised. In every sport, there is a leash. You let it be managers from your Alex Ferguson's down through the years. Um, let it be soccer players, Messi and Ronaldo. Let it be golfers. Let it be tennis players. There are people who are just. You know they're able to manage the skill. This, I think, the skill set of a trainer is something that's quite incredible. You know that that one person has to manage so much. They have to manage the staff, the finances, the stocking of. You know, it's simply you, you just it's eye watering the stock of feed they need to have. They're managing so so much. The entries, the owners, uh, the disappointments, the the success, and, and they have to roll with it all. So it's a very wide skill set. They have to be able to acquire the new horses, manage them, uh, get the people to buy them in the first place. Um, and some people can juggle all of those balls and still deliver the calibre of racehorse in the condition. They're good delegators, obviously, as well, uh, and, and they build a good team. But that's part of the skill set, that they can build this good team. And, you know, um, for some reason, these are the elite. But when you look at any other sport, managers are participants. There are people who, who excel. And that's just life. Let's talk about some of the raw materials that these trainers have to work with then and um, and go down through, hopefully, some potential superstars. Who would be at the very top of your list of ex-Irish point-to-pointers now in training in the UK or Ireland that you're really excited about seeing? Oh. <laughs> um, gosh. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't look at it that way. I, I suppose you kind of look at it like you're... I'm invested into the crop of 2023. So when I listed the crop of 2018 there, the and all the rest of it, you want to know first and foremost, is it a good crop? So every time one of them gets an entry and runs, you're going, okay, where did I slot him in? And is he running to expectation? What did he beat? And is that what does that now mean for the form figures that come out of it? So um, you're watching every four-year-old and the ones that cost more, you hope that they are better mm. because you know all that went into making them cost more. They were probably more expensive store. They were probably more impressive before the run and in the run. So if they don't deliver, you go, okay, are we in a weak year here? Is this going to um, have any influence on purchasers saying if this is a weak year and we gave a little bit too much, we will be soft the following year. So you do want your top priced horses to do best. So you sort of, you start there and, um, there's probably, there was a horse that stood out last year, um, Wilson Denison, a nice horse in Kirkistown called, is it Jericho de Repine or something like that? Um, it's a it's a bizarre name. Um, he looked he looked very smart. I think he's in Nicky Henderson's. He was sold privately. Um, Jericho de Repine with Gordon Elliott. Yeah. He was JP bottom. Is he with Gordon? Yeah, sorry. 
Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. I'm actually thinking of a different horse with Nicky Anderson. Yeah, he looked he looked very smart when he won. To be very obvious, Quanamita looked I, I another thing that's over assessed is the clock. Um their hand timed in as best you can. So a second or two either way is is you know negligible. But Quanamita on the clock was she broke it. And a couple of weeks ago, another horse broke it. He made a bit of a fuss on social media, a horse called Tishan. And I think he was 20 seconds faster than any other horse on the day. Now, you don't need to be a genius on clocks when you go, that's different. You don't need For to me, be Nick Morton to realise that's that's bonkers. No. What's the name of that horse? Um, and it is bonkers. Tishan. Tishan. Um, I suppose what I look for when I'm looking at, at, at races, I remember years ago Nationwide did a feature on Point of Pointing and I can't remember the name of the lady who presented, but she, she interviewed Derek O'Connor and she said, you have six rides today and you're going from one horse to the other. How do you do it? And he said, well, she, you know, you take instructions from the trainer. And she said, is it important that you have ridden the horses before? And he said, not as important as having ridden the track before. Now, there's so much in that line, so much in that line. When you get to know the tracks, you get to know what should be possible and shouldn't be possible. So if, for instance, a horse set sail in the Cheltenham bumper at the top of the hill and was still in front of the line, we would all know, oh, that's, that's not, that doesn't normally happen. So if I go to the usual tracks that I go to every single year and a horse does something that you're not used to seeing, I presume it's like a, a football scout looking at a, a kid that can do something that the other kids can't do. So Tishan went to Lock and Moore. The race bunched up behind him. They went a good old gallop. The race bunched up behind him five out. And he just came alive. And in my head, I think, look, I've been in Lockenmore for 25 years. If you've come alive now, it's a long way home. And all of a sudden, he's 10 clear. He's 15 clear. And I'm going, right, you're going to jump the last. And I'm not so sure here. He jumps the last. He quickens out past the line and out past the next fence. I'm going, I've, I've never seen that in Lockenmore. 25 years gone to Lockenmore. I've never, never seen that. So then I check the clock. And it's only the second race. It's hugely faster than the first race. And as the day goes on, you go, yeah, that time was extraordinary. I think he won by 41 lengths. 41 lengths. I've yeah. never seen it before. Yeah. I don't know how good he'll be after this. Will he be a disappointment? Will he ever be heard of again? But in that particular moment, at that time, that's as much as you could ask of a horse. He's been sold privately. I don't know what he made. Um, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at a performance like that and say, on the balance of probability, that should be a good horse. Because we know that the best of the crop every year hit you know the best of the crop hit grade one every year he looks like one that could hit grade one he might come back and say oh Richard Pugh said Tishan and he mightn't be but he looks like he could be so that's why someone would probably roll in and say he's worth buying I could be wrong about this but I think he's the only horse who was sub seven minutes he was six minutes and 50 seconds everything else was seven minutes plus exactly yeah yeah Colomita did the same um, now look that's a bit I suppose that's a very obvious example where a horse does something like that on other days horses win by a couple of lengths and the horse they beat isn't all that impressive um, I think Denman beat a horse that went on to be rated 105 and he didn't blow him out of the water he won and that was it yeah High Chaparral uh, was Jerry beaten on debut beat... by a horse who went on to be a novice hurdler and not a very good one well there you go um, Jerry Colomb beat a smart horse but he didn't beat a horse that was um that was a rock star and it was a head. Um, so it's not an exact science. You try and put everything in your favor. You say, okay, what is, what is the pedigree of this horse? What is the model? How does he move? How did he react to his first day at the races? How did he jump? How did he travel? How did he relax? The biggest benefit point of pointing has is that they are three mile races. 
a horse, there's no hiding place. A horse, ha I know they're not three mile in the sense that you have to get three mile, but there is, there is that they're easy tracks to get three mile on, but there's that amount of galloping time, there's six and a half, seven minutes. So there's enough time for a horse to, to, to burn up, to burn up oil, if you like. So those that relax best and take the race best, finish best, how do they jump when they're under pressure? How do they quicken when they're ultimately asked to? And when you put all of those pieces together, if they've ticked all the boxes, you're hoping they're in that bracket of the four-year-olds that, that hit the heights and not the ones that, that ultimately disappoint. Uh, but you're playing in a pool that you know more of them hit the top level than in any other pool you can play in. The uh, the Willie Mullins horse that I was talking about with the slattery link-up, that was a horse that I'm told wasn't visually impressive in Cantico, is the horse's name, a diamond boy out of all you need. Um, but while it was an ugly win, it was good enough to make Willie Mullins say, I want that horse, and good enough to have people there going, that's going to be a horse to follow. Yeah, it, it's a good example because, as I say, if there's obviously Willie saw something he liked in him, he won by a head and three lengths. It was a slow motion finish. The, the commentator even said it was a slow motion finish. Perhaps they went very quick early and didn't get home as quickly as they would have done if they went slow early. Um, so if I showed you or any judge from the last of the line and said, look at this, it's not the race that you'd say it, it wouldn't wow you. But if you've been following that horse, I, I don't know the story here, so maybe Harold or whoever knew about the horse as a store, they knew about him as a as an emerging three come four-year-old, and they were almost satisfied by the time he did ultimately win his point of points. You know, sometimes you've been following the journey of the horse. And, and as I say, this is the last piece in the jigsaw, the fact that he was tough enough to put his head in front. But visually, to the eye, no, it wasn't the most impressive winner you're going to see all year. Um, Wilmont is a horse that's been a lot, there's been a lot of talk about, if I can use my mouth words correctly. Um, Neil Mulholland was very excited about him. He won two bumpers for him last year, including very impressively at, at Doncaster as a long odds on favorite for Sam Tristan Davis. And he seemed to be excited about what was going to go on. And then he was moved to Nicky Henderson. Nicky has, has said in a, I think it was a Racing Post stable tour, that he was so taken with him, they immediately bought his half-sister. And that's got a lot of people very excited about what this horse could potentially be. Um, what would be your impression of him? To be honest, my impression of him would be irrelevant because once he's won his point to points, he beat Shannon Royale that day. He was second to Lecky Watson today or third to Lecky Watson today. He's placed behind Lecky Watson today. Over two mile and seven. So already that's the sort of direction of travel for Shannon Royale. I think he'd be a very, a very successful horse for Gordon. You know, he, he plays him where he needs to be. So that's all I know. Wilmount beat a horse that was second or third in a maiden hurdle with hurdles today. So the information around Wilmount, there's no sort of... <sighs> There's nothing unseen or there's no great unknown there. Wilmont beat Shannon Royale. That's all. It is far more beneficial to know and to watch that he has now won twice around Doncaster and what those horses have gone on to do. Because that form very quickly becomes far more relevant than anything we can tell you. I can tell you he jumped, he travelled and he quickened well in his point of point to beat Shannon Royale. But Lecky Watson beat Shannon Royale today. And Lecky Watson finished mid-div in a Cheltenham bumper. So that's, that's all I can tell you about Wilmont. But anything he's done since. So if Nicky Henderson tells you he looks the job. That's far more informative than anything I can tell you. And he does sound very excited about him. At the champion bumper, Willie Mullins and Gordon both sending over such a strong team. Dennis O'Regan was on with me. He'll be on with me again very, very soon too. He was making the observation at the time that perhaps Gordon sending over as many as he was and Willie sending over such a strong team that maybe history would tell you if Gordon sends one, then he's very, very confident that horse is going to win. If he's sending multiple runners maybe he's not entirely sure. And I wonder if that's just changed. 
and you're kind of smiling already. I wonder if that's just changed because they now have so many horses. That how do you tell an owner who wants a runner at Cheltenham? Now we're not going to go for the champion bumper with that horse. I, I believe Willie was very keen to run Ballyburn, and Mr. Bartlett was just like, "Nah, we're not doing that. I don't want to run in the champion bumper. We'll go to Punchestown instead." And and that the word was that he was the best of the Willie Mullins bumper horses last year. So it's it's not an exact science, but it is an interesting talking point that. Sometimes if they're carpet bombing a race like the champion bumper with multiple runners, it means they're not entirely sure they've got the right one. I just wonder if they've got so many different owners who all want to be able to compete. You're 100% right. Mm. The old days, maybe. But nowadays, if you have that many horses that have gone out and done their thing in their bumper, been very impressive, and the owner says, do you think he could hold his own in Cheltenham? Yes. I mean, it doesn't take Willie Mullins to see a 15 Lake Navin bumper winner to know that if he turns up in Cheltenham, he has, he has a, a place. Um, and I, if I own that horse, I said, well, Willie, I'd like to be there. It's a great one at the Cheltenham Festival. I don't know where he'll be next year. Can I go? Well, sure, why not? And from Willie's point of view, every horse he runs is one less for someone else to run. So it's perfectly logical to, you know, I, I don't read anything into it other than Willie's having a good year if he can have six or eight or ten uh, that are capable of lining up there because he doesn't bring them over to, 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 to waste bullets. He brings them over because he thinks, yeah, you have a place there. So... I think you're right. They have enough horses to do that, and they have more and more horses, and they need to get them to these Cheltenham races. I think there's far too much right into. I would agree with you. Um, Ballyburn and Tully Hill are interesting though, because didn't both of them go from like Willie can take his time with with many horses, including point of pointers, but both of them began their season with a different trainer, uh, both the same trainer, Colin McKeever for Wilson Dennison, and turned out to be as good as they were by the end of the season. I I just think that's Whatever Willie does over the long term is, is impressive, but to be able to, to to progress those horses into being as good as they were so quickly, um, having come from other, and, and Colin McKee was an exceptional trainer, he said York Hill, Briar Hill, you know, so many good horses, uh, but the Willie way is, is the Willie way, and that's different. So the fact that he was able to to get them to that level and be confident enough to go to Punchestown or want to go to Cheltenham, I, I think they're, that they're a bit special. Yeah, talking about the prices of horses, I remember... Very early on, when interviewing Patrick Mullins for the first time, he was talking about Tell Us More, who at the time was the most expensive horse in the Willie Mullins yard. Back in the days when £220,000 would be the most expensive horse in, in Willie Mullins yard. And he said he was a big, burly-looking horse, but he was very much unfurnished, bit backward, and he, he was saying it was going to take a year for that horse to be right. And Willie saw something in him straight away and went, yeah, we'll run him in a bumper in two weeks. And Patrick nearly fainted. Like He said all of this in the podcast. Was like That doesn't make any sense. And the horse absolutely bolted up. Now, it turned out afterwards, Tell Us More wasn't quite the grade one superstar that he looked to be. But that's a, just another example of the fact that I hadn't even thought of the fact that uh, Tully Hill and Ballyburn had not begun their campaign with Willie Mullins. They began it with other trainers, um, the same trainers, as you pointed out. And yet they both went on to do what they did. Tully Hill ran a, a huge race at the Punchestown Festival and well, Ballyburn looks at a proper exciting prospect for the new season. Tell us more is an interesting one because he did win his point of point well. I think he made 280 afterwards. So he goes to Gore and he wins 12 lengths and then he goes on to Gore and again and he wins 11 lengths and we're all saying, sure, he was worth it. Great value. And never again did he quite hit those heights. So he ultimately became, to be critical, he ultimately became a disappointment I don't know why. I don't know why he was so good for his first three runs uh, and why it didn't progress onwards. But that's the precarious nature of buying these horses. On the day, 
after he won his Tattersall's point to point, he looked a great buy. And the next two runs, it was an inspired buy. And for the rest of his career, it was probably a disappointing buy. Um, what happened? I don't know. Maybe Willie knows. Maybe something happened in the yard. Maybe mentally something happened. But something changed that horse because whatever you want to say would have been a disappointment. His first two runs prove he was much better in the early part of career than he was in the latter half of his career. Mm. So had he, if whatever happened to him after a second Gordon run happened after his run in Tattersalls, two runs earlier, oh, there's another one. There's a point of pointer now that surely, you know, how could they've given that sort of money? We're almost, if you wanted to protect the brand point of pointing, aren't we lucky that he had two good runs to prove, look, he was good. We don't really know what happened. And that's the truth of it. Tony Hill's an interesting one. I, I'm obviously in the commentary box for, for that sort of race in in. Punchestown. I don't know how much coverage this got, but he needed a lot of, of assistance after the Shetland bumper, or the Punchestown bumper, rather, behind a dream to share. Like, I thought, having seen him win his point of point in October and liking him, but he won a neck now. You know, he won a neck uh, to win his point of point in, um, in, in Moira. The second horse went out and finished 82 lengths, eighth of eight in Foslas on his only subsequent start. So the former figures aren't saying... This is the next coming. But Tully Hill does his thing in, in Gorn, and then he goes to Punchestown, and he gives a dream to share. John Gleeson has to change his reins on him. He needs to, he to get serious for a few strides. For Tully Hill to put in that performance, and then I don't know what he needed after the race, but the screens were up, and he needed assistance, and there's lots of buckets of water being thrown over. I hope he recovers from that. Mm. Um, because it was a big effort from a horse, a huge effort for a young horse. So, But they're the things you're trying to follow, and you hope that they all go the right way. Tell us more didn't. I don't know what happened, but others do. But I don't think we should be crazy. If Tony Hill goes on to great things, I'll be delighted. If he doesn't, that's the nature of some, some athletes. You know, they're great when they're young, and they, for whatever reason, they don't follow through. There was uh, was a <clears throat> Butler's Cabin, John Joneal horse. He used to need a, a little bit of assistance after a race. He definitely needed assistance after after his Cheltenham win. And obviously many clouds after winning the Grand National needed assistance. He needed to, to be in the, the cooling area. And, and um, well, we all know what happened to him afterwards, which was a real shame. But that would be a concern for me with Tully Hill. And it's not something I knew beforehand. Uh, you just wonder if that's going to leave a bit of a mark on him going forward. Hopefully not, because he's a, he's a he's he's an incredible talent to win a neck um, at, at Moira, a um, couple of lengths in Gorn, and then step up again to... I, I don't I don't know how many people remember it, but a furlong, furlong and a half down was a moment where you thought, just might have him on the ropes here. And then the class of a dream to share one through and, and, and good good for him. But um, that, that's how, how good a performance I thought Tully Hill put in that day. I've got one more horse to ask you about. And this is one I've talked about on the show oh. before. He hasn't run yet, but Paul Nichols has mentioned him. Um, a bit confusing. The first time I heard him talk about him, he mentioned a novice hurdling campaign. Now he's talking about running in the bumper uh, and possibly a champion bumper horse. I believe he was bought privately, but I believe Mr. Delahaye paid 500,000 of the King's Finest Sovereigns to acquire Welcome to Cartier's or Welcome to Cartier's. Um, yeah, Dunica Doyle had him. Um, I suppose you're looking at a 16-length winner. So on the balance of probability... You know that the caliber of what they're running at at the moment is is so high that you don't expect any four year old to to win by sixteen lengths. And Boris is a it, it's a fast track, so you definitely don't expect them to you know to to put that daylight between them and the others. The last two fences smoke quite quickly, and you know it all happens a little sharp. He won. He was backed into favoritism. He wins 16 lengths. He's exactly the profile. He's by no risk at all. That should say you should be to the top end 
of your year. And that is why, I don't know what Johnny Danahay gave for him, but um, he wouldn't have been cheap because if you win your point of point that impressively. But again, there's no magic knowledge within the sphere of point of pointing. I saw that he won 16 lengths. There's a video there for you to watch it. He's he's rolling the dice that he's the one and, and he's in that shortlist that should be. He was probably, uh, you know, a, a reasonably, yeah, he was an 80,000 store as well. Um, his dam's a three times winner. You're, you're ticking so many boxes that I, I think we mystify point to point a bit too much. If his dam's a three time winner, he's from a nice page. He has cost 80,000, so he's clearly a very nice store. He goes to his point to point. He bolts up 16 lengths. He's shortlisted. He is shortlisted. If there's an envoy in a steering for long 20 second year, he ticks the boxes to be one at the top bracket of those. He might be disappointing, but he'll have to disappoint to not be a very good horse. But for context, the second horse he beat is rated 116. So what you're saying is, this horse is an absolute stone cold, solid moral for the champion bumper and we should all get on right now. Exactly what I'm saying is what <laughs> everyone else knows. You never know. You put the stats in your favour and you hope that given the history of how these races turn out, he looks like he should be above average and when they're above average, they're grade one. But there's no knowing. If there was knowing, the whole sport would be boring. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the, the magic things. I know that there's... Um, there's even a, a repeat of this conversation now that oh, the build-up to Cheltenham is too much and we get excited about it so much. There's Those same people rail against the cliche of calling Cheltenham the Olympics of racing. And yet, the like the Champions League is a massive event. But are Liverpool going to be there? Like I'm, I'm excited to see the Champions League final, but I'm more excited if Liverpool are going to be there and they can't be there this year because we're not in it. Um, if we can all be very excited about the Champions League final, but your team is probably not going to be in the final. Your horse is probably going to run at Cheltenham. And if, if it's not the horse that you were backing earlier in the season, there will be something that you're super excited about to see in a novice hurdle, in a novice chase, in one of the feature races. And that's an advantage of that uh, event at Punchestown, Aintree, the whole rest of them, that no other sport can give. And also, just the, the connection between horse and human. And the fact that the Equine Stars, they're really, you can say what you want about Frankie Dettori, absolute legend of a jockey, incredible personality. It's about the horses. It's really about the horses. That's what draws people to the track. They're incredibly special. And if this fella, people are getting excited about him. If he turns out to be a superstar, he'll have a big fan base and he'll drive more people into it. If he turns out to be a decent Saturday afternoon ITV horse, that's okay too. There's nothing in his CV at the moment that says he can't be a superstar. Clip that quote out. That's the one we're going with. Uh, if there was one point-to-pointer that you would tell people to follow, who would it be? I haven't given this enough thought, so we stick with Tishan because he won last week. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry now. <laughs> it sounds like your yeah. memory has gone a little bit like mine. If it happened 20 years ago, you remember it vividly. If it happened five minutes ago, it's like, well, what? Yeah, it is a bit that way, I suppose. Look... Colin Bowen with a very nice mare last Sunday, Honky Tonk Highway. She's a daughter of Milan. She looked very impressive. She races behind the bridle. So she's, she's. Um, I think it was a good maiden. I think Aidan Fitzgerald produced a really good runner-up. Go online, watch the video. The two of them, quick, it was heavy ground, as you can imagine. Sure, everything's been cancelled at the moment. And they quickened up the straight at some rate of knots. And this thing found two or three more lengths. Looked very good. Um, yeah, there's, like I could go through this season's four-year-olds. There's... Pat Doyle came out the first day with a horse called Brave Fortune and he runs on the Lifetime Ambition colours. He was very impressive and sometimes he'd say, ah, maybe the first day we won't see a, a real one. And yeah, he looked the part. 
a horse called Jaron Khan won in Fort Rush this year for Colin Bow and Ben Hansel. Um, wasn't his first run, but looked very good. Uh, Warren Ewing had a nice filly by Jack Hobbs, Reflection of You. I'm not saying she'd be top class, but she's a really smart, classy filly, and and she's nice. Harley, there's Harley Dunn. He had a four-year maiden winner, Piper Park. By walk in the park at a Shannon Theatre, who's by King's Theatre. Box is ticked. Box is ticked. She's taken her training. She's turned up. She's won her four-year maiden. She's got a nice pedigree. I think she cost a good throw as a store. Yeah, she. Yeah, but until she goes the next day, there's no. Richard Pugh doesn't have any insight into these any more than the next person. I'm looking at the obvious logical tick boxes saying everyone at the store says like them. Pedigree is strong took training to be able to run at four and has emerged the far side of that a winner. You're already on the top end of it. And that is why 88% of them will go on to perform on the track. Richard, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I could talk to you for hours more, but you have a life to live. So we'll, and we, our listeners have lives to live as well. So we'll let everybody get on with their day. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. Big fan of your work, big fan of the RTE uh, operation as well. That team between Jane Mangan, Ruby, Hugh, yourself, it's a, it's a credit to all of you. Keep up the great work and um, hopefully Ireland will continue to dominate British. I mean, uh, continue to fly the flag at Cheltenham. Yeah, that's that's the phrase. Um, best of luck, Richard. Please, God, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Emmett. And thank you for listening. If you were watching this on YouTube, this is whole new. We're doing this very differently. Based for radio rating ideal. So we're starting out afresh, basically. We're starting from scratch on YouTube. Uh, likes, shares, subscribes on YouTube is a massive help. Likes and shares on social media for the podcast through Spotify is a massive help as well. Thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll talk to you again very, very soon on the Final Forum podcast. Look after yourself and each other. God bless. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.